Welcome to the International Teacher Podcast with your host, Matt the Family Guy, Kent the Cat Guy, and me, Greg the Single Guy. We are recording episodes from around the globe to tell you about the best kept secret in education. That's right, it's teaching overseas. We're glad to have you join us. I usually cut out about 45 minutes of Kent talking. Is there any way you can make you look better? I was going to say, I usually hear, like, I I will say, yeah, most of the podcasts I've listened to, Kent has been minimalized from (laughs) (laughs) perspective. Oh, she's doing great. She's already got all the secrets of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Kent, bring us into the show and we'll start the recording and go from there. How about that? Go ahead and just get this rolling. Are you ready, Brantley? I didn't ask you. She's ready. Fun. Usually. These are very serious, usually. So I'm psyched. No, we're in this for the fun of it. We're we just like talking. We're teachers that have like little kids all day long. My communications director was like, "Can we get her on air? Because like we can't take any more like long with Brantley talking." Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So okay. What what's the name of our podcast again? The uh, it's something to do with teaching. Podcast. I don't know. Is it teaching or teachers? What are we again? We're the International Teacher, teacher Podcast. Teacher. I got that wrong last time. Hey, welcome to the International Teacher Podcast. And once again with you, I am Kent the Cat Guy. And today with me is... Greg the Single Guy. I almost got that wrong again. And we're still looking out for Matt. Uh, he's not here yet. We're going to get back to him. But Kent, we're going to have a great show. I can't wait to meet this person because she's exciting and it's a little bit different flavor this time. She's got a different background, but I'm going to, I can't wait to talk with her. So bring her on in, Ken. She might be the smartest guest that we've ever had on our program. Her name is Brantley Turner, and I'm going to take a moment and let her introduce herself to our audience. Uh, Brantley, tell us a few words about yourself. So you've totally set me up, by the way. Smartest guest. Now it's like back at, you know, I got to walk it back. Lower expectations. Um, so hi, Brantley Turner, joining you guys from New York today, but longtime resident of China, all over China, but mainly in Shanghai and on my way to a new adventure in Vietnam, but have a fun year to catch up with all that's great about the USA and reconnect I'm teaching this semester and it's the greatest thing ever so looking forward to just chatting and, and having fun today ni hao ni hao Brantley before <laughs> I let Kent talk anymore I'd like to know a little elevator version of your history your journey with international or with education in general could you do that for us I came to education really through a ge- geographical interest that was China I went to China for the first time in 1993 what has now been a 20-year, you know, 30-year ride, yikes, um, has been amazing. And I rode the wave, right? You know, I had a lot of opportunities as a young person. I did study Mandarin in college. I can speak, read, and write Chinese. That opened a lot of doors for me. But I was like, raise my hand, do a lot of odd jobs. I've had more odd jobs in China probably than most people just from having been there early. And always wanted to work in education, but did a round in uh, advertising, worked in market research, focused on youth. Because when I first started working in China in 2000, you know, it was teach English, which I did. I'm not very good at it. And also, or teach in international schools, we'll call it international classic, right? Schools for the children of foreign workers, as they are officially classified in China. You know, and I didn't have the credentials to do that or really the interest. Mine, again, was driven by geography, language, et cetera. So did other jobs 
farms in China until 06 when I started a kind of a company, really a nonprofit to bring students to China from abroad, do exchange, do, you know, experiential education, did that for a long time. And that's how I met Dwight Schools in 08. Uh, we started a program in Beijing at Capital Normal High School, Shodu Shifan Dashia Fushu Zhongxia, for those who understand wow. on, the, on the podcast. And um, basically, that was amazing. And I decided to join Dwight full time and started Shanghai Chibao Dwight High School in started working on it in 2012, so 10 years ago. And in 2014, Open Doors Chibao Dwight was and remains the only independent Sino US cooperatively run high school approved by the Ministry of Education in the country of China. And so we we really can share a lot about like how to ride the wave of what's going on in the future in terms of education in China, educating Chinese nationals. And I still work for Dwight. I post into Dwight New York this year and I will be moving. We are starting Dwight School Hanoi and I'm running that project along with the team uh, and getting doors open as soon as we can. Before you tell us a little bit more about Dwight, I am fascinated by Dwight. Explain to us how you, at a young age, got so interested in China that that was going to be your goal and maybe even unbeknownst to you, your home for 30 years. How did that happen? So I deserve no credit for that move. Um, basically, I hate to say this, but I sometimes say to people, you know, I'm not sure I, when I was 17, I knew Beijing was the capital of China. I mean, we were focused on different stuff, right? Like the internet, this is a mid early nineties, the internet's coming out. That's cool. Um, you know, focused on a lot of good days in the USA. And my parents moved to Hong Kong due to work for both of them. So they are from Alabama and Tennessee, respectively, definitely never thought they would be in Hong Kong. <laughs> they wound up spending 15 years there. And so I got to come to China. I never lived in Hong Kong. I was going to college, but I got to come all of a sudden, like holidays were in Asia and not like the dead Kennedy song. You know, the, if you guys know that reference, holidays in Cambodia, holiday in um, Cambodia, in holiday in Cambodia. Yeah. I love that song. <laughs> I know. I that often. I don't know why I was trying to play it for my students the other day. So I wound up traveling a lot in mainland. And then when I graduated in 98, so this is just a quick kind of prelude to thinking about jobs, graduated from college in 1998, started interviewing for jobs. People were like, hey, it's all fine and well that like your resume says you speak Chinese, but we, we can't test that. And we don't know. And so I decided I better go get a credential that helped like validate that. So I went, Johns Hopkins has a cooperatively run university master's program in Nanjing. And I joined that program. You study Chinese foreign policy and stuff in Chinese. Uh, let's just say most people who come to that program are lawyers or state department folks. I became an educator. So a little bit of a different pathway, but awesome program validated the Chinese. And then I just never left. So I moved to Shanghai. And that was it. Wow. I told you smartest guest that we've got. <laughs> not not that Greg and I set the bar that high, but still. Wow. I had two roommates in college who studied Russian and I was studying Chinese and we were like the Soviet bloc Chinese language speaking roommates. And, you know, hey, I got I rolled the dice and here we are. It, it sounds like to me as if you also have a background in not just the Chinese language, but maybe the political science of China, the history, the geography. Tell us just a little bit more about your knowledge uh, before we jump into your education career in China. Sure. So, you know, I, I think it's interesting. 
actually I came at Chinese and the language, not from the, this is super practical. Like let's teach PPT skills. Let's teach stock picking. Let's learn Chinese because then we'll all have jobs. Like that was not at all my angle. And you could say, you know, I'm the product of a privileged liberal arts education who had the space to explore a lot of stuff. And, you know, I just kept coming back to, if you're interested in architecture, if you're interested in art, if you're interested in history, there's music, there's so many angles that lead you back to, you know, what had, what was going on in China for a long time. Um, Confucius, Mencius, Mozi, philosophy. I mean, so kind of it became open and there was an opportunity to again engage with China. And I feel like I've engaged with it on a lot of different levels. The people, not just right, that practical side of, wow, China is going to be a good place to develop. So in some ways I stumbled into it, I got lucky, but I kept interested because as I was becoming more, you know, an older adult, China also was changing. And I think in a nutshell, for the arc of time that I was in China, physically and engaged with China, it, it's been a very optimistic place to be engaged. A lot of movement, a lot of speed, a lot of energy. And I love that. I love places that feel optimistic. And, you know, look, they're, they're facing some changes. The pandemic has brought a lot of complexity, both to China domestically and also to the international scene. But again, I choose to sort of look at all of the value that I've gained and all of the opportunities and, and you know, amazing people that I've met, amazing students, just like the most amazing young people. So it's been a positive arc and, again, like a real privilege what kind of organization, what kind of people do you need to become the only recognized uh, joint venture recognized by the Ministry of Education? So it started with the Chinese partner, Qibao High School, which is one of the top public high schools in Shanghai. You test it, you know, you picture, you know, doing the best of the best in the Chinese national system. The national exam is called the Gaokao, you know, the big test. If you go to Qibao High School, you're already a top achiever through that, that system. But our chairman, who was at the time the principal of Chiba High School and a veteran state school, you know, state educator in China, he was like, look, I don't speak English. I don't know how to start this joint cooperatively run thing. Let's sort of put forward that it would be better if this were independent as opposed to like embedded in the public high school. And it was a moment in time, like basically the way to understand it is in 2003, China put forward the cooperatively run education law. There are a bunch of projects under that. NYU, New York University, Shanghai, Nottingham, Duke Kunshan, et cetera. They're all universities. So after Shanghai approved NYU to start operations in Shanghai, they were like, let's do high school. So ultimately through a lot of different sort of twists and turns, they got to Chibao High School, asked Chairman Cho Zhonghai to, to, to spearhead this. He said, let's find a partner, let's make this thing work and brought on our principal who's still the principal in China, her name is Wang Fang. I mean, they are just great navigators of policy and like reading behind the, the, the meaning of vague language and putting something together. So our students do the international baccalaureate just in grades 11th and 12th. Grade 10 is kind of a preparation year. They do have to test into Chibao Dwight through the national high school entrance exam. But the way to keep it all kind of compliant is they sit for national exams in language, history, politics, and geography. And that's on top of the IB. So again, you have to be pretty hardcore to make it through as a student, great language acumen in both Chinese and in English. We have had international students go, but it's primarily Chinese nationals. Your students have to be 
the top students in two different systems, sort of a Western IB system and the Chinese educational system. Did I hear that correctly? Correct. So ultimately, many of them have not had exposure to inquiry-based or international curriculum before coming in. But they've got to they've got to pivot, man. These kids can sit with paradox like nobody. I mean, they can hold con conflicting ideas, complex ideas. As I said, I have nothing but respect for these kids and what they go through. And you know, look, it's it's not easy. It's really admirable. But they're very good at navigating the Chinese system. So actually, like our IB Chinese A class, Chinese Lang and Lit, that integrates both. We've integrated the Chinese national requirements and the IB requirements, and we do it in one class. They don't take additional classes. And so from a curricular, like if you're a if you're a nerd, you know, and you like like the concept of integration. And ultimately, don't I feel like you guys really, really understand this, and so do most of your guests, that the arc of international education has changed. Again, from that time when I couldn't necessarily get a job teaching in Shanghai in, in the late 90s because I didn't have any American credentials, a lot of international education was serving international passport holders. But we've watched that arc to international education serving ho host country nationals, right? There are now more international programs serving host country nationals than just foreign passport holders globally. And, and China rode that arc. They had to figure out a way to make it work because there was demand. It's kept people from leaving China to go abroad earlier, but also it, there's a pipeline for going to college abroad, right? So, you know, we could dig into those numbers if it's interesting. All of a sudden, I'm thinking, I want to go teach for you. I mean, it. let me read something that was sent to me before our interview. You have a manager that sets up some of your podcasts for you. This is your introduction page. It's wonderful. It says, Brantley is committed to restless innovation in leadership and management, school improvement, and cutting-edge arts program that drives student outcomes unmatched in China. This unique school setting is used as an example for policymaking in Beijing that shapes education in China and around the world. I mean, I'm sort of thinking... I'm just an international teacher, right? Can I, uh, I hope you feel good. That was great. Well written. How do you say, I'm humbled. What kind of teachers are you looking for and do you recruit? Yeah, for sure. So look, you know, in China, we're only a high school and it's DP diploma program and you're teaching really smart kids. Really the reality is what are we looking for in China is people who are committed, you know, people who who understand um, and can support kids through the challenges that they faced as they bump up against that inquiry style and all of the, the goodness of the IB for the first time in their lives and steward them out. Like I think about all of our Dwight projects as like bridge in, bridge out. You know, we're just as much there to learn uh, from the local context as we are to bring in international pedagogy. I always say in China, look, the internationalization of education is not the westernization of education. Like, be, let's be clear on that, right? Absolutely. So folks who feel like they're going to show up, they're the experts, they know everything, that, that doesn't work out so well, right? Because it's all about adaptation and, and coming to understand the culture and how to teach best in that culture. So in China, it's high school teaching, it, it's the IB track, although we have hired non-IB teachers and trained them. We've hired non-licensed teachers and trained them. We have some visa flexibility in China that allows for us to do some creative stuff with pulling in folks that may been non-traditional to the industry. And, and that's been certainly my path, as I said. On the Vietnam side, we're building the team. So right now we're doing, we're going leadership, deputy head of school, head of lower school and some positions for 2023. And then we play buildings under construction and we plan to open doors in 2024 to our 
early childhood through upper school. So we will be certainly actively recruiting and, and looking for people to come and join us in Vietnam and New York right now with the visa and H-1B situation. We used to be able to hire more foreign passport holders in the U.S. That's not really on the cart on the table right now. So in the U.S., it's more U.S. educators. But for U.S. educators who want to crack at the IB, which, right, is a great direction if you want to have a kind of interim step before yeah, going abroad. Way in. Dwight, New York is a great place to be for that long-term excellence. 50 years running the full diploma in New York City at, at Dwight. So I would imagine that you're, the goal of the to go with the flavor of Dwight and, and what their standards are, I would imagine that your Vietnam school is going to go for minimum, minimum at least DP, uh, right, diploma IB, and it's going to probably go for a world school to compete within Vietnam. It sounds to me, if there's a high school teacher that is international or in the States or a Western country that's listening to this, that's interested in getting a job at a quality school, they would definitely look at Dwight as an option. So my question specifically is, how does your team recruit for that school? So right now, you know, for Dwight New York, we really, we post everything online. So we post for, so let me just run just for for the audience's sake, basically, we've got, these are our schools, right? Dwight School, New York, 150 years old, long-term IB, wow. Manhattan, uh, Dwight London, uh, founded 50 years ago, 1972, running the IB in the UK during Brexit, Jayo, you know, keep, keep charging. We've got Dwight School, Seoul, 15 years, um, great school, full continuum, PYP through DP School in Seoul. We've got Chibao, Dwight, Shanghai, I are only cooperatively run, again, fitting the model of the country, right, and what, what the demands are there and the expectations. We have Dwight School Dubai. I don't know if you've ever dropped by a full continuum school in Dubai. And we have a Dwight Global Online School that was actually founded before the pandemic, primarily serving professional students. So actors, actresses, um, tennis players, you know, athletes, et cetera, who need rigorous curriculum but are in an online model so they have flexibility. That program, by the way, is is a pilot program for the IB to do the full diploma online, which is super cool because that's wow. that's hard to do. And then uh, Dwight School Hanoi will open doors uh, in, in Hanoi and again adds to that. So because Dwight's 150 years old, it's actually had various iterations. At one point, Dwight School educated 12,000 students a year in, in New York City. Um, and we also had Franklin School for Boys, which was Dwight and Franklin ultimately merged and, and became the Dwight you know today. But we also have Franklin. So we have Franklin uh, in New Jersey, and it's new this year. We kind of reopened that brand. And what's cool about Franklin is it's not IB. So it's really focused on a lot of hands-on learning, um, and it's high school only. So again, for folks who are interested in kind of being a part of a group, but like maybe not so much IB, Franklin is a, is a great option. Great, great head of school there, new this year. And, you know, I think what's really in, interesting about Dwight and why I work for Dwight and why I'm sticking with Dwight is it's a family owned school, which is very rare. It's been under the control of the same family for 80 years. They are actively involved in a positive way with managing and operating both our chancellor, who's 80 this year, Chancellor Stephen Spahn. He's a visionary. He is an innovator. He is a hundred ideas. I mean, would that we could all be as amazing as he is at, at his age. I just really have nothing to say, but just so much admiration for his, for his visionary leadership. And our vice chancellor, Dr. Blake Spahn, is really at the helm of the organization now. And 
these are the people that I work with daily, whether it's via Zoom and I'm in China or abroad or now here in New York, and it's very special. So we aren't a school group that's for sale. We really encourage and make possible the collaboration of our students. So travel's been tough for the last few years. We've taken it online, but we do music festivals together, choir festivals together, you know, MUN together, and you're an alumni of one, Dwight, you're an alumni of all, and that's really important to us. And we feel like that helps us really live the mission of the IB, right? We are truly focused on being internationally minded and creating a space, but still it has that feeling of a smaller organization, right? Not a kind of behemoth, faceless place to be. And so I'm very committed to both Dwight and also feel like they empower me to do really cool stuff. I can feel your passion. Just it's it's not easy to get you to talk, is it? Really, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so you're no, no, no. You're doing awesome. I mean, I love it when we have a guest that talks more than we do. It's it's more interesting that because Kent and I are just not interesting, and we're not special. In fact, we found that out two episodes ago that we're not special people at all. <laughs> and Greg's longtime friend told us that. Exactly. No, 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 that was, no uh, somebody else did. That was J.P. Mintz. That JP was, Mintz yeah, told us that. a cold call. It was basically uh, just met her, and she's like call. that. I think it's fascinating that the Dwight schools, the original school is 150 years old. This year. Uh, Brentley, you use the phrase... Uh, International education is not U.S. education or Western education. Did I get that phrase right? So when you're looking for a teacher, most of the teachers that you meet are going to be most familiar with that American model of education. What do you look for and what makes a teacher most successful when you recruit and bring them into the Dwight system? So what I would say is, as opposed to saying it's not Western, I would say it's not Westernization. And I think this is something we really have to be focused on not only in local context, because you could you could kind of map colonization onto westernization as, as, a, as an idea. And I think there's a lot of familiarity and discussion about that globally with the US, with the UK. So to me, it's open-mindedness is a, is a, and flexibility and agility is a global skill set, right? It really isn't about where you're from. I think rigorous programs of teacher training globally, be they US programs, UK programs, New Zealand, I've had amazing colleagues from India who are licensed teachers there. There's common standards that are universal. And you know, as teachers, one of the really interesting things is we have these standards, we have best practices, but also ethics, right? Like what is a global ethics or what is like an ethics for our world? And how are we gonna help young people everywhere kind of agree to certain common values. So I think that really with recruiting teachers, it's it's so much about that those values, what they bring to work every day in terms of their energy. Do they have some foundational experience, even if it's a little bit alternative with education? I mean, teaching is really hard. Everybody on the line knows that. It's unbelievable how underestimated the challenge of teaching every day is by the world. For people who've been through training of any kind, you know, we can work with that and try to get those folks on board with what our standards are, our expectations are, trained for the IB. But the starting place has got to be that your heart is in the right place and that you're you're doing this. I do believe teaching is a calling, but it's really hard to maintain it as a calling with the daily grind. So teachers who find their own ways to sort of stay motivated, stay engaged, 
try to love what they're doing uh, is certainly a starting point for us. So I wouldn't put too many labels on on what we look for exactly, except keeping that open mind and, and having their heart in the right place. So I've talked with other administrators and school leaders, which you represent also. And I think the import what I get from what you just said, you're looking for the right people, not the right teachers with the, you know, we ha- all have to have credentials. We all have to have some kind of experience to prove that. But we we are teachers of a certain caliber, and that's, I think, what you're looking for is the person, not the right – oh, God, I almost said it, Kent – not the right fit. But- Finding the right fit, <laughs> www.amazon.com or wherever you buy your finer books. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, Brantley. The, the joke keeps coming on. The coming on is my mom buys more copies. <laughs> She's up to seven. We're doing great. Right. <laughs> Out of eight. So – I love it that you're you're really looking for quality people and quality educators willing to adapt. And I love what you said that the fact that you're not looking for somebody that's trying to westernize the thinking of the students. It's more of the IB which is a global presence which is caring for environment which is relating to your local and wrapping that all up into the curriculum that is chosen also for the school. So I love the IB personally. It sounds like your schools are really good quality to go towards that. All right, Kent, next question. Okay, maybe you could just tell us just some of the different roles that you've played within that organization over the years, but also what you've got coming up looking forward to. Good question. Again, I started out with Dwight kind of just as a partner, right? Bringing students from Dwight to China on trips. And those were just spring break experiential learning. Some of those kids were taking Mandarin, not all, right? And just let's get to China. Let's see what's going on. And that started in 2008. And think about that. That was Olympics. It was, you know, Shanghai Expo was coming up. There was a lot of momentum for understanding China. And again, really focused on experiential peace. So from that standpoint, I just interacted with Dwight at that, you know, at that level. Then they were really launching their Mandarin program more robustly. I had dialogue with them over the time about how that was going to function well. And then in 09, as they were looking for some support with the facilitation of the relationship at the school in Beijing, I came in um, along with a colleague to really facilitate that, both you know, straight up from a translator translation perspective. And then over time, but we were, we did that program for six years, right? I had the, the privilege of working with the college counselors, working with the director of curriculum, who's now the head of school at Dwight, New York, Deanne Drew. She was on the governing board of the IB until this past December for, for many years as the head of the heads council. So like really amazing educators within the Dwight system and the IB system. And so I got, I learned from the best. I always say I had great PD at Dwight by just wearing a lot of different hats, being in different rooms to, to, to do that China facilitation role and, and help to direct that program. Long story short, you know, the main role I played for 10 years was founding American principal and then ultimately governing board member of Chibao Dwight High School. Right now, my title is director of East Asia education for Dwight. But again, that's really just trying to pull the organization together to share best practices, particularly across Asia and spending a lot of time just working on what our Dwight School Hanoi setup is going to look like. Hey, Brantley, before we talk about Hanoi and Vietnam, which I am really looking forward to hearing about, let me ask you kind of a question that I hear a lot, even from veteran teachers, when they make a list of where they want to go in the world, of where they want to teach, their list usually sounds like something like anywhere but China. 
And there's a lot of people out there that maybe one experience or two experience with being in China, or maybe have never been there at all. What do you say to, you know, just casually when you're talking to people and they have doubts or they have questions about China or they might have a picture of China that is less than flattering? What what are your thoughts about that? I think, A, it's a big country, right? So if we're having a conversation about where to teach in the U.S., I mean, we're going to start by talking about what is that place within the U.S. like. So teaching in New York is very different than teaching my dad's hometown of Louvre in Alabama. The same with China, right? start by saying, if you're looking at China, first start thinking about where, you know, where are you considering? And that can look very different. There are more nature oriented roles down in the South, you know, in a, in a place like Hainan Island, that's grown a lot with sea and sand and sun. Um, there's Shanghai, which to me is, is one of the great cities of the world. There's the North where, you know, you're much more kind of at the seat of power and embedded in, in the decision-making of the country, but a lot of really good schools as a result. So I would say, first of all, a lot of folks who've never interacted with China are going to start by looking at China for two things. One is the available opportunities. You're going to go on search. You're going to go on other platforms. There's a lot of jobs in China. Education is highly revered, highly valued. There is demand. And with that demand, the second piece is people are going to find good pay packages, right? So I don't think we should deny that some, some folks want to go abroad and start teaching because they would like to maybe retire a little bit earlier or they want to save for you know, a, a home. So I think, again, there's the practical side. First, look, what do you really need from an environmental perspective, country, you know, rural location, city location? China does have all those things. Second of all, the, the pay packages. And third, caliber of students, right? I mean, many people who've taught in China, if you look on the, the blogs and the, and the you know, bulletin boards, people have had some very good experiences with students there. Classroom management, um, passion for learning, parent support. And look, okay, there's the good and the bad side of parent support, but at the same time, respect for teachers, dedication to education and families doing everything they can to get their kids there. So, so I would say there are a lot of positives. You gotta strip away a lot of the chatter. And the reality is, as a teacher, you have to think to yourself, okay, how much are you affected by the macro landscape, right? I mean, we've we got Xi and Biden meeting in Bali in the last couple of days. Those are some high-level talks that are important and need to happen. But they don't necessarily play out on a day-to-day basis in, in a teacher's life. So I would say parse the, the media and the coverage from your own, what you need at this point in your career and, and in your life. Now, The only caveat I'll add is that the pandemic and the border closures have added a really rough run. I think everybody in the world went through their own different forms of trauma during the pandemic. And so I won't make light of it. I don't think, you know, I know some places had it worse than others as well. China is still in a challenging phase with regard to how they're going to manage for zero COVID. And so I would say watch this space, right? Like, don't write it off. Things change really quickly in China. Uh, I watched that for 30 years. I mean, day on day changes. And so I would just say, if you're thinking about it, but you're not sure, take a pause, continue to evaluate, but don't, don't say, hey, you know, if you have a slight interest or there's a spark there some way, try to engage more, learn more. And again, excellent schools to go work for in China. I mean, really, there's some world-class institutions all across the country. So again, I would say give it its fair shake. 
We'll take a moment's break now to remind you how to reach out to us. Of course, you can address any negative comments to Kent, the cat guy. We do love to hear from you. If you're out on Facebook, we don't do that, but our handle on both Instagram and Twitter are at ITPexpats with an S, I-T-P-E-X-P-A-T-S. As a handle, if you want to, you can send us an old email at internationalteacherpodcast at gmail.com, or you can visit us at our new website at www.itpexpat.com, www.itpexpat.com. Well, back to the show. I heard a quote once that said, there are more students in high school graduating each year in China than there are high school students in the United States. So it's fascinating because we lose perspective of exactly how big China is. And I really respect that answer that you gave saying that we have to look at the area of China, the specific place that you're looking at. Look at the school within that place that you're looking at. Because everyone hears about how Shanghai is this massive city and that Beijing is the cement forest, right? And you never see the daylight. And, you know, these are all these rumors that you hear from people that teach in these cities and at the bigger schools. I have to really respect that answer because it's so different and it depends on who you're talking to, where they've been, and they haven't even seen the whole of China. There's so many places. I uh, Can I share one story about Shanghai while we're on the topic? I went to China, to Shanghai, when I was living in Cambodia, and I went to a conference. Kent, have you ever been there to Shanghai? I have not. You have not. Okay. Brantley knows this, is that Shanghai has a lot of schools, and, uh, and they're bigger schools, like with 2,000, 3,000 students in a, in a K-12 through school. We went to a conference there, and I'll never forget it. I had never been to China before. We were only there for like five days, and my friend and I decided to go and have lunch like in between the conference times, we broke away and decided we go local. So we go to this restaurant and we go in and they have this massive menu. Brantley, do most of the restaurants like have a big picture menu? It would be common to see pictures of food at, across all fancy, you know, high end to low end. All right, cool. I, I'm glad to know that because it, it helps a lot because I don't speak even one word of Chinese except, well, except for Ni Hao. And I really was unprepared for it. We go into this restaurant and we're like, we'll just pick from the pictures. So my friend Eric and I, we both pick these pictures and we're both rather large white guys, right? We're the only Westers in this restaurant. We pick our things and we're thinking we get rice with it. Absolutely. We're going to just get rice with it. In Cambodia, you get rice with everything. And we're thinking, okay, we each pick out like one main meal and a third one just to try. And we had a couple beers we figure we get rice with it. It comes out and the waiter just drops it off and disappears. You know, they're busy. There's tons of people. We didn't know how to say rice. And we're like, uh, uh, there's no pictures of rice in there. Just We wanted just plain white rice or plain something rice. And we couldn't get it. We finally flagged the guy down. And if you can picture in your head the like miming chopsticks into your, into your, into your mouth a little bit, we're thinking like, does that mean... In Cambodia and other places in Asia, it means sort of like, I want some rice. But we weren't really sure because the guy just buzzed past us and we're miming rice or something. <laughs> it worked. We came back out and we both felt so stupid, though. I mean, we are travelers. We're not tourists. We should have at least known a few words to get us by for those four days. But that was my little story about China. I couldn't remember how to, I didn't know how to say anything like rice. 
But it was a wonderful experience in China, Brantley. I loved it. I need to go back. You know what? When I started China Prep, the, the organization that I ran, as I said, doing experiential education, I had one message. You know what? Check it out. Just go check it out. This was it was 05. The seeds were born for that organization. And I would visit schools in the U.S. and, and just say, you know what? Check it out. I will never and I certainly am not on this podcast to like be an apologist for any government or to say that, that you need to change your own way of thinking or values. Absolutely not. But you've got to try to be informed. And I consider being informed about superpower relations to be just of utmost importance. So if you have an opportunity to check it out, like you said, for a conference, that must have been at Shanghai American School, I would guess, if you went to Yeah, I think it was the Community International School. And it was uh, back in 2008. Okay. Oh, SCIS. Yeah, SCIS. Yeah, back SCIS. in 2008, I had a yeah. couple of friends that were mm-hmm. working there still. Everybody says so many great things about China. It is on my list at some point. I've been apprehensive about the lockdown because we've been locked down in, in this host country for so long and in the desert, nonetheless. You know, I guess if I was locked down in China, I would hope that I'd at least be able to travel around massive China, and I still need to give it a shake. And it depends on when the right time for me is. That's the spirit of being an international educator, right? It's keeping that open mind Watching the way things move, disrupting your life sometimes brings you new, exciting things you never thought of. So I think China, keep it on the list, but certainly they don't play, okay? For the pandemic, they don't, they, they don't play. So I have a rule, and I don't know, Kent, maybe yours is the same, but I don't watch the major news networks. I usually watch uh, a smattering of different things. I'll watch a little bit of this, a little bit of BBC, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and they all have their own flavors. But I'm trying to sift through the real knowledge, the real stuff out there. You have to make your own decisions based on not being closed off to the information, but make sure you at least have an idea what's going on. If uh, you were interviewing a teacher who was interested in coming to China, is there one book or one movie or TV show that you you said, learn about China, get to know what this country is like. It's not one person. It's not one place. Is there a source for someone out there who would like to begin to widen their knowledge of China, would you have one recommendation for them? Kent will buy it right now on his Kindle. I, I can, the only like response I can think of is OMG. There's a lot and there is a lot out there. Like there is more written on China every day. Just so many books are coming out about China. So what I would say is my favorite stuff on China is newsletters and substacks and and folks so really respected voices as opposed to saying a seminal text because what i worry about is again people are going to look at texts that are you know about very challenging times during history and sometimes that can cloud the the understanding of today so why don't i do this like a couple journal let me give a couple journalists names that, that i would think be great it'd be worth yeah. checking out their stuff i think um I think anything Jim McGregor communicates about China is always worth checking out. He's he's was a longtime journalist. Now it would be more kind of following his LinkedIn. Um, Evan Osnos is very well respected. Pete Hessler, longtime writer on China. Many people would recommend his book, River Town. Those three folks have a lot of really great balanced points of view. Jeremy Goldcorn. Again, the list goes on and on, but I think taking a look at some of the really responsible journalists and journalism. So maybe go to the New Yorker to read some of their work on China long-term. They also have Chinese journalists who are writing. I think it's important to get those different voices. So to not only read Western journalists, I just mentioned Western male journalists, by the way, but um, to check out, to check out Chinese journalists as well. Um, 
But, you know, look, feel free to contact me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy if people have a particular area of interest to recommend. Because, again, that's a whole podcast. We could really break down yeah. what's, you know, what's being covered on China. Um, and it would, it would be a long show. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think people, oh, I'm going to look into some of those authors. I can't wait. Thank you for that. So on to that big question I had. Tell us about your next big project. We are, we are launching Dwight School Hanoi. That's out in the public domain. We are working with a great architect through Carlos Zapata Studio. We have a local owner um, who's well-known, not in the education space, but, but in terms of contributing, you know, giving back to the people of Vietnam. That's a lot of the goals of the school. You know, I think the, the reality of Vietnam is maybe the way that listeners can relate is I was very comfortable in China. Um, I had a great job. I, I, you know, I founded a school and I gave a, a pound of flesh and I really love it, right? I really cared about it. It was my fourth child. I have three of my own children and it was like my fourth kid. And I, you know, and it's really, really hard to walk away from something when you're a founder or when you've invested so much. But I, you know, I do believe in that power of disruption. And I think it's really important for organizations to let it fly, you know, walk away as a founder and, and have the next generation take over. And I think that's what proves the model, right? If I had to stay at the school for it to be successful, then, you know, what have we been doing for the last 10 years? So it was extremely, extremely hard to uproot myself, my family, my kids were born in China. I met my husband in China, but I think moving on to the next adventure. And one of the things a little bit different than some folks in the international landscape who maybe do two years, two years, and they've covered so many countries. I, I like to try to, to do, have a good run, right? I, I'm, I do want to try to commit to things that I think I can at least commit a solid chunk of, of time to. So moving into Vietnam has been with a lot of thought and consideration if I can help bring something to the project. But you know, I can't speak Vietnamese. That's a really new experience for me. I'm going to try to learn some. I think I can put together a team that can can start a great school, and we, you know, we'll we'll take it day by day. So for me, I live very comfortably in a kind of VUCA world of lots of uncertainty, volatility, you know, complexity, ambiguity. I kind of thrive in that um, kind of space. So. For Vietnam, again, it'll be a pre-K through 12 full continuum. We will apply for IBDP, you know, uh, IB authorization, full continuum authorization, but that, that, that takes a few years. So we're just getting started on that. Um, and I think what's really important, and I'll just, just add this, is specifically Vietnam, it's a really interesting time. Okay, if you think about Vietnam and the first three things that come to your mind, you know, and, and we don't have to dive into what those are, but every listener can, can pull that quickly. Coffee, motorbikes, and I got a second one, uh, probably Vietnam War. It had to go back to history, right? And that proves your point. Right. You know, and that's the thing, like, you know, and, and for, for coffee, you can thank French colonization um, for a Vietnam War. They call it the American War in Vietnam. And just the growth, right? What What's going motorbikes? I mean, that kind of, in some senses, represents the growth of the country. Massive growth. And they're ready, right? They're ready to contribute differently as a country, I think, ready to contribute diff differently to that narrative. And I think if you look at a lot, a lot of what's going on in Asia, right, a lot of speed of development, speed of innovation, South China Sea, which in Vietnam they call the East Sea, important territorial role, important from a geopolitical perspective. I think Vietnam has a very interesting role to play in the region and has 
people who I've met and encountered so far in the journey to Vietnam have a lot of openness and interest in in being a part of that journey, vast appetite for education, for, for upward mobility, a lot of study abroad out of Vietnam. I mean, not, not, I mean, relative to numbers, let's say, just to give you an idea, 2019, 2020 Open Doors report would have put about 300,000 Chinese national students coming to, China, to the United States for higher education. The second would have been India with, with, with just under that number. And Vietnam would have been about 25,000. So we're not talking about huge volume, but we are talking about relative per percentage. And I think that there's an interest in getting out, seeing what's going on, a lot of open-mindedness and a lot of optimism. So to come back to it is I'm really drawn to places that feel like they're on the move, that there's optimism, that there's that there's change happening and opening happening. And last but not least, as a parent, and so I know that you know some of the listeners are parents, I don't have time to like tiger mom my kids like honestly it's kind of on them like get the homework done I don't check it I I, I can't even log into the systems I don't even know like I, <laughs> as a mom who's I've I've used every system there is I mean I've tried it from the mom side the school administrator side and so my sort of parenting strategy has just been disrupting my kids lives by pulling them to different places and creating that resilience and that flexibility and so it was really important to me that before my kids leave home, they had an opportunity to live in another country aside from China and now the US. So part of it was a parenting strategy um, to, to help them realize that the world is gonna need kids who are flexible and can, can handle different situations that might make them uncomfortable. We're gonna have to get them on the show, Kent. Right? Another TCK, maybe. <laughs> maybe get your maybe get one of your yeah. kids on to cross oceans with Julia. You know, shout out yeah. to Julia on that one, right? The other thing I was looking at was the news, how they have opened up the railway between, or they're close to opening up the railway between the Southeast Asia and China, transport and goods and services. I mean, it's going to be, it's it's a massive topic right now. No, I was just going to say, yeah, last but not least, obviously that Southeast Asia relationship with North Asia is really important. I gave a speech last year for the Shanghai communique. It was like the 50th anniversary of Nixon and Mao's, you know, meeting and the normalization of right. relations. And I gave a meeting, my speech was called from witness to participant, you know, how I went from watching to participating. And I feel that same way. I'm just a witness right now to what's going on in that part of the world, you know, open and ready to learn and understand that I will not know or understand much and just try to not impose, you know, my, I'm all about trying to get it right, not be right. You know, hey, what is gonna what is gonna work and what is gonna fit as opposed to having this preconceived notion of you know it must be done a certain way. Yeah, I'm psyched. I'm, I'm grateful for the for the chance to give it a shot. I think it's very refreshing how humble you are as a school leader, as a a business person that you know that you're not infallible, that you have a lot to learn. I think it's refreshing to hear from from you in that way because our leaders have to know that in order to be a great leader, you know that you have a lot to learn and you always count on the people that have helped you get you where you are. And I think those are really true qualities that come right out the way you talk about your passions. I don't remember if you mentioned the name of the school in Vietnam and when you think you're going to be opening the doors. Yeah, so it is Dwight. It's Dwight School Hanoi. So it's just our, our, newest, our newest Dwight. And basically, we will have leadership on the ground in 2023 and then open planned opening early childhood through upper school in 2024 with a big open. But 
but we are hiring now because we are going to start building out curriculum and we're working on licensure. The building is underway. So we've already got construction. We've broken ground. We've finished the basement. We're at the first floor. Yeah, definitely. You know, just on that, right. My, my boss would be the first person to tell you, nobody would have made me ahead of school. Uh, and so I just want, you know, like for listeners to know, you know what, just take a risk and, and, and shoot for those opportunities. But like you say, stay humble. I mean, none of us know everything and I can't stand the, the know-it-all administrator. You know, it's like, we're really, really in it to build teams, right? If you're an administrator, you're running a team. We're so much more the component of all of our parts than we are any one individual. So definitely, I think folks that are not looking to be center stage and, and recognize that they have a lot of space to grow and are certainly not infallible. Um, I mean, students teach us that daily, right? You know, every I mean, single day, well, every minute yeah. of every day. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is right now, if you are looking for an opportunity to be part of a team that's at the ground floor, literally, because there's no second floor yet, getting on the ground level of building a school, this is their opportunity right now to reach out, uh, send that resume, send that cover letter to the Dwight organization for this opportunity. Absolutely. I think Kent wants to be on your recruiting team. So he, he's got a side, <laughs> he needs a side job. He's not busy enough with fourth grade. <laughs> oh, believe me, some days I am ready to send a resume out the door, but today might have been one of them. <laughs> All right. Can I ask you a lighthearted question uh, for ITP's sake? Uh, we always have we have a lot of guests on here and they like to talk about their uh, police stories. So I have I have two questions. My first one is, do you have a police story for us? A nice little G rated one. No trouble whatsoever. Just sort of fun. Oh my God. I have definitely not, I have non G rated stories that I'll keep off the air <laughs> considering that, where they that's for the pay. We'll put that at the Patreon level. <laughs> um, we, we have no Patreon. Yeah. That's how we'll make money. Tune in and for $50 extra, Tune we'll in. get, we'll get Brantley's stories <laughs> from donation now, behind bars. <laughs> hey, Kent this is a formal interview. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Class this up a little bit, Greg, would you? So I won't. Yeah. So anyway, no, I just think back to the parenting. Definitely. I When you guys mentioned my kids on the podcast, I could hear particularly my 14 year old's eyes rolling from across town where she's at school, um, you know, a uh, mom podcast. But that same 14 year old daughter about a, a year ago was on a scooter illegally in Shanghai and got into an altercation with a police officer um, over why she was riding in a lane that she wasn't supposed to be riding in. And so I would just say, hey, make sure your kids, when you're, um, when you're you know, educating them abroad, know that they know enough uh, local language to have a friendly altercation with police and make sure that you keep your children from getting your visa canceled because uh, <laughs> that's actually... You know, that did not happen. That is not why we're in New York. But seriously, you know, <laughs> you've got to remember, you've got to educate your 
your own children to not get you in trouble. You know, you'll be this principal or something. And all of a sudden, the first call you're getting is, um, your kid has gotten into trouble. So that I always feared that call the most. But along with that goes respect and, and, and making sure that, that your own children can always understand and respect the, the local context where you are. But yes, Chinese police are probably not something to share broadly about on, on, on a podcast, but definitely a lot of, a lot of stories. Thankfully, not stories that are teacher related. Thank God. Yes. Well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I I mean, lighthearted was the way I I put it because I don't like to say police stories of any country. We don't want (laughs) the wrong message out there. Here's my second fun question for you. And this is language related. In my experience, speaking a couple of languages, I've been in a situation where somebody is talking about me and they didn't know that I understood the language. So especially as a Western, as a Western woman, have you, can you share an experience you might've had either Mandarin to, to English or English to Mandarin? I've been talked about tons, right? And I've done things like hearing the people at the table next to me talking and they're commenting on why we aren't doing something. And then we start doing what they're saying and like, you know. Um, the interesting thing has, is actually more eavesdropping in New York Ooh. to Chinese conversations <laughs> because then it's really unexpected, right? In a Shanghai context, it's not completely unexpected that a that a foreigner would speak Chinese, but in the but in New York, but the thing is, you know what? In New York, it's like I'm I was totally eavesdropping at like Bloomingdale's the other day on somebody buying something. <laughs> and wanted to like. My problem is that I'm a total budinsky and I want to show that I understand. So that is the ego part. Like I definitely want to like make a comment, but I would say this just on that, which is, which is kind of fun. Um, one of the things China taught me was, whoa, I can, I've heard everything about myself. You know, I used to show up to get my hair cut every once in a while with same hairdresser for eight years. He'd be like, you gained what, about seven pounds? Oh, you lost about four pounds. I'm like, I don't need a scale. Cause I've got you, man. Like, and, and, really being resilient and not and not group thinky right you know being like hey you know what i can take it it gave me such a thick skin that i didn't have before i feel like i've heard it all not always secretly most often directly to my face wow it's true if they misjudge you thinking that you don't understand it happens a lot overseas in, in all different countries in all different situations i'll be sitting in a grocery store line and somebody's in front of me speaking German, and they're talking about me. I take the opportunity to step in and say, whoa, really? And start joining their conversation and look at their eyes just bug out of their head. Kent is learning Japanese. I know that Kent has learned, has dabbled with with Arabic, and I'm doing the same thing with, um, with dabbling, I guess, in other languages. But Chinese, I actually bought a book the other day to learn how to start writing some of the Chinese characters which is uh, just a beginning because I feel like if I ever do get married when I'm about 150 and I end up finding the right person, I will have my kids learn Chinese. Well, and I'll give you a quick tip. Both, honestly, I, I took French in high school. My French is not great, but not terrible. And I would, I had tried German for three weeks and Japanese did ha- have enough familiarity. Chinese is easier. The grammar in German and Japanese is so much harder. The Chinese grammar is so much more similar to, to English. Awesome. At least in terms of how you string. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to, I mean, if you can't hear any of the tones, you know, that is tough. But the point is that I do think it's more um, accessible 
than people might think. Yes, the script is 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 tricky, but um, it's at least from an oral comprehension perspective, people can get there. I'm hoping Vietnamese, Vietnamese has six tones. I can hear some of the words are similar. There's some, it's like a, you know, there's some, I can hear a little bit uh, in Vietnamese from Chinese. So I'm going to try to tackle that a bit and see where I get, but I would need, I think, full-time studying the language to fully learn it, but still don't fear Chinese. It's definitely, it's definitely doable. It's going to be a lot of fun for you. I can't wait to hear a little bit later on. We'll have to check in with you and see how all that goes with Vietnam. That's exciting. That would be awesome. Yeah. That would be awesome. Great. All right, Kent. Any closing thoughts from our guest, Ms. Brantley, before we start to wind down? No, I would just say, look, reach out. Feel free to share. Um, I think LinkedIn is often the best way to get in touch. Just Brantley Turner. I think I'm easy to find. And I'm, I'm always happy to connect. Like if I can give advice, I still stay in touch with a lot of my former colleagues for career advice and, you know, just how to think about a pathway. So I'd be happy to be in touch with anyone. And if you're interested in Asia, certainly IB, Dwight, et cetera, all, all good. I'm, I'm happy to connect. Thank you, Brantley. This has been fantastic. How do you say thank you in Mandarin again? Xie How did I do? Ooh, nice. Good all right. pronunciation. Okay. Yeah, I so started. Not yeah. bad. Yeah, it's X-I-E, X-I-E, but, you know, xie If you don't look at it, it's easier, right? Yeah, that's hard. Well, thank you so much. You are a fantastic guest. I'm so happy that we yeah, came across you. Absolutely. And, thank you. Yep. And Kent and I are going to, I mean, I, I can't speak for Kent. I'm going to learn a little bit more Chinese. I'm inspired now at least learning the script before I can find uh, a teacher at some point. I think it's exciting and inspirational to hear you talk about uh, the schools. I think that um, your Dwight School, the Dwight School uh, Foundation, the family-run schools, is fascinating. Now you've opened my eyes a lot, and our listeners are going to probably start looking into what Dwight has to offer. So I really appreciate you being our guest. And Kent, we would like to thank our guest today, Miss Brantley Turner. On behalf of Greg and myself, this is Kent saying, "Tune in in the future when we hear." the rest of Brantley's Free Stories. Until next time, we'll see you later.